Hey everyone, we are really excited to be hosting uh, the first episode of Falcon X podcast. Uh, my name is Raghu Yarlagadada, and I'm the co-founder and CEO for Falcon X. And uh, the purpose of Falcon X podcast is to bring some of the best minds that we know of in crypto and have a very candid, open conversation about the state of the industry and where the industry is evolving. For the very first episode, I'm very excited to be hosting Ian, who is a very good friend and a mentor. And more than that, he has a tremendous vantage point for crypto. Uh, he's an entrepreneur. He worked in traditional finance, specifically at City, heading their blockchain and crypto practice. And then he's a venture capitalist uh, at the moment with Idea Collapse. He's going to be doing a much more detailed introduction about his background. But from these three perspectives, Ian has a great understanding of how crypto evolved so far and where crypto is going. So the thesis of this conversation is going to be around where we are and where is crypto heading. So with that, let's uh, jump into a quick round of introduction. Ian, thanks so much for making the time. It'll be fantastic. We can quickly introduce yourself and also Idea Cola. No, sounds great. So thank you, Regu, and um, thanks for having me on this. I'm, I'm so excited for Falcon X and, and also this new podcast that you're doing. So my name is Ian. Um, I'm the managing partner of a new venture firm that actually spun out of IDEO called IDEO Collab Ventures. Um, I'll talk about IDEO in a second, but my background is um, I spent a majority of my career actually working in aerospace and automotive for about eight years in the Midwest and other parts of the United States, uh, working on things like manufacturing cars, manufacturing helicopters in Texas. And um, it was a lot of fun, but I actually ended up realizing eight years in that I was working on the wrong uh, questions and the wrong problems. And when I realized that um, it didn't matter if I was making it, helping make a helicopter in two thirds of the time, but what I should have been working on was why was autonomous drones starting mm -hmm. to eat up the helicopter market. It led me into this field of innovation and venturing about 10 years ago. And so I've been focused on that. Um, been building out different innovation and venturing arms of different companies, uh, first at a consulting firm called Deloitte. Then I uh, was hired by Citigroup as part of its venture division called City Ventures in 2014 to run their labs and accelerators. And when I was there in 2014, I was exposed to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies for a number of reasons, um, one of which was that central banks, which were some of uh, Citigroup's biggest customers were mm -hmm. questioning what is the potential of a cryptocurrency, both from a disruptive perspective as well as could governments start to use these things um, for their own purposes? You know, people now call them CBDCs, but we were exploring that six years ago with those those countries. And what was interesting was, you know, when I initially read the Bitcoin white paper, I immediately saw in it an open fintech stack, like an mm -hmm. open fintech software stack. And because I had been studying open software like Android and, and iOS and things like that and how disruptive those were to the software industry, I sort of immediately realized, oh, my gosh, this is potentially an open fintech stack um, to, to the financial services industry. So I became, as, as you mentioned, I was leading um, uh, all of the crypto and blockchain activity across the bank for three years. And during that time, I met a team at IDEO. Uh, who was starting a division focused on crypto in 2015, and I helped them start that lab with Fidelity, mm -hmm. NASDAQ, Citigroup, and we launched it at Harvard and MIT in 2015. 
And over the last five years, what we've been doing at IDO is trying to understand where decentralized technologies like cryptocurrencies and blockchains would ultimately show up in the world, in people's lives, in businesses, in society. And that's enabled us to work with hundreds of startups around the world. That's ultimately what um, enabled us to spin out a venture capital fund, which is now invested in over 30 blockchain and crypto startups, including Falcon X. And what we're really excited about is how we as IDEO don't just invest capital. We help these companies build their product and build their businesses, ship it in the market, help them get customers and help them grow because we're very hands-on. Like, as you mentioned, I'm a designer and builder. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, you know, I do some engineering. And so um, we're all kind of like that. And that's what we love doing. And so this, uh, you know, this, this fund that we've been running for the past two years has been an an incredible enabler of uh, the work that we love to do. One quick note on IDEO, which if, if you don't know who IDEO is, IDEO is a 40-year-old company that was started in the 80s. And what put IDEO on the map in 1980 was doing a lot of the early work with Steve Jobs and Apple to mm-hmm. help bring personal computing to the mainstream through the design and development of uh, basically what we call human-centered products. So mm-hmm. the mouse, the original consumer mouse, um, was a design and invention of, of IDEO for Apple um, IDEO then um, effectively helped design and invent the first laptop in 1981. And over the last 40 years, IDEO has been behind the design and invention of a lot of uh, new technologies, new businesses, you know, in the areas of AI, autonomous vehicles, digital health, um, you know, media and entertainment like HBO and, and its move to a streaming platform. 10 years ago. And so IDEO has been, been doing this, you know, consistently for the last 40 years. And what we view our role in the crypto and blockchain space is that this technology is, is very difficult to use. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most people cannot use it. And so both through our work on the design and product side, as well as now investing in early stage companies, we believe that our role is in helping bring this technology to the mainstream, Mm -hmm. unlocking the benefits but also making it more usable for everyday people. And that's the journey and mission that we're on. That's exciting. Um, It's fascinating to draw on ideas, experience, and expertise in crafting beautiful workflows, seamless human-centered design, and bringing that to uh, crypto. I think crypto very much needs it. Uh, Before we jump further into uh, sort of follow-up questions there, Ian, thanks so much for sharing the background. A little bit of context about my background in Falcon X. Uh, As I mentioned, my name is Raghu Yarlagada. I'm the co-founder CEO for Falcon X. And before Falcon X, uh, I started my career as an engineer. After that, a serial entrepreneur. And then I went to what I call the dark side, business school. Very fortunate to have gone to Harvard Business School. Right after business school, I was about to start a company, but I had a fascinating conversation uh, with Sundar, who is now the CEO for Google and Alphabet. And um, I was very fortunate to be uh, working on his team. And I drove efforts on a product line called Chromebooks, which are very popular now in uh, K through 12 U.S. education. And some of the very the brightest people that I knew at uh, Google, they were fascinated by Bitcoin. Back at that time, I always felt that Bitcoin is a Ponzi scheme. But, you know, when you see some of the brightest engineers uh, get very excited about digital assets, Bitcoin, and decentralization, I was very curious on what that means. And as I went through that rabbit hole, I absolutely fell in love. 
So politely transitioned from uh, Google uh, to start FalconX about two years back. FalconX at a very high level, we had a one-stop shop for institutions. Um, we started the company focused on trading. We became one of the largest large block institutional trading platform. And wrapped around the trading platform, we added layers like credit and tiering. Uh, ultimately, what we want to answer uh, or to serve is any institution who is coming into crypto, in less than a day, we want to get them up and running and take care of all their trading needs, custody needs, credit needs, clearing needs uh, through us and through our partners. Uh, we're very fortunate to be growing incredibly fast. And um, we want to be paying back to the industry in the form of these podcasts where we are going to get some of some of the brightest minds that we know of in crypto. With that, uh, back to you again, Ian. One of the questions, uh, you know, going back to your background, at City, what got you excited about crypto? Why crypto? Hmm. I mean, you know, I've always been attracted to uh, sometimes intractable problems, <laughs> maybe sometimes to my my detriment, um, because that that's just the what I want to spend my time doing um, and my life doing is working on problems that. Um, are really important that are really difficult and will ultimately, if you solve them, last for generations upon generations after um, I'm I'm no longer here. And so, when you know you think about um, where some of the biggest problems and inefficiencies are in the world, I mean there there are so many. Um, uh, and to be honest, like I, I didn't really uh, know much at all about. Uh, crypto or decentralization before I, I came to Citigroup. But once I was there, you know, after reading the white paper in 2014 with Satoshi, I, I started thinking about the financial system and how it has effectively not changed dramatically over the last 500 to 1,000 years mm -hmm. in, in existence. I mean, the internet, I wrote about this in The Defiant a few months ago, but the internet over the last 20 years has led to incredible innovation in fintech. But mm -hmm. look at the the, the, the the financial stack and the tech stack. Mm -hmm. It's primarily been limited in terms of disruption and innovation to the experience and application layers. And yep. um, what's continuing to happen is that you have companies like PayPal, Square, um, and Venmo and all these others that are doing incredible, you know, doing incredible things to the financial system, but they still run on top of the traditional system. And um, the issue with that is that because it is still running largely on the traditional system, you can't unlock some of the, the, the biggest benefits of opening up the financial system unless you open up the lowest levels of the stack. Mm -hmm. And that's why with Bitcoin and all of these other decentralizing you know, financial technologies like Ethereum and, uh, and other things, that's why it's so profound is if you can open up the lowest levels of the stack, that mm -hmm. enables not only other things on top of that to start to open up, but new things that we don't even have today that become possible because of that new open financial infrastructure. And so that's that's why I got so excited in um, you know in 2014. But uh, as as I saw pretty quickly, I mean, it's mm -hmm. not finance. I mean, this this potential or this opportunity that we have for open infrastructure exists not just within finance, but all these other areas in the world. You know, ranging from media to um, you know the future of work to gaming and, and all these other places that have had problems for decades, similar to the financial industry. That's awesome. I mean, let's double click on that a little bit more. I think uh, 
perhaps going deeper into uh, the personas in crypto, the use cases, we can probably construct that argument on what happens if you unlock the lower parts of that stack and enable a completely, a radically much more efficient stack, right? So um, how, how do you break down the current use cases and personas within crypto as of today, Ian? Yeah, so this is something that IDEO is um, uniquely well-positioned to do. I mean, this is effectively what IDEO is all about, which is, you know, understanding who the users and potential customers are, what their existing as well as future needs are or will be, and then based on those needs, figuring out what should be built for them and when, and then Mm -hmm. how. Um, And so IDEO has been doing this for 40 years. We've been doing this in the crypto space for five years. And over the last five years in working with all of these amazing entrepreneurs and and founders and, and dev talent, is we, we constantly get this question, which is, well, especially now that um, the industry has matured away from just like sort of, you know, layer ones and, and lowest low level infrastructure now to the application product layer, we're getting more and more of these types of questions, which is who are the users of crypto um, in the near and long term? How do we like what is it that they want and need? Um, how do we reach them? What types of products uh, should we build for for these people, depending on the user archetype? And I guess what I would say is that um, is a couple things. The first is that um, we have to acknowledge that we're still very early in uh, the development of this technology. Mm-hmm. Um, we are still, you know, at best in the early adopter phase, and and so um, it, it's still going to take quite a bit of time for these technologies and these use cases to reach mainstream users. I mean, there's there's a lot of potential here. We're starting to see some early indications of it, but I don't think we should like um, expect that in the next year or two, this is going to be as big as, uh, you know, or as widely adopted as like something like Facebook or Google. Mm-hmm. Um, that's point number one. Point number two, though, is even with that said, there are um, many user groups, archetypes, as we call them, mm-hmm. that need decentralization and need crypto networks now, whether they realize it or not. And so um, some of the, the, the archetypes that fit in that category include, um, obviously, the early adopters of, of crypto. I mean, they have been driving uh, the adoption of and, and growth of this industry so far, and they will continue to do that as they start to build tools, services, and infrastructure for themselves, you know, enabling them uh, to do more things with it. Like, for example, all of this innovation in the area of decentralized finance, you know, started with arguably Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, but now with Ethereum, you know, it, it started out with sort of decentralized exchange, but now decentralized lending, um, options, you know, all of these things are starting to build up. And it's it's largely today for those early adopters, which just mm-hmm. enable them to do more, right? And so I think that's going to continue to be true. And there's going to be a lot of exciting things, you know, are, are obviously already, but over the you know next few years, um, that in themselves, even if this didn't break out to the mainstream with your grandma or your mom, um, <laughs> will still be incredibly valuable and useful. Um, so that's category one. Category two is a emergent category that we're seeing more recently, which are financially savvy individuals. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they are technically savvy that know a lot about the finance world, 
they may be working already uh, on Wall Street or at some of these you know, hedge funds all over um, who are now starting to realize that crypto and some of these things like DeFi are just like what they see in the traditional world, just mm-hmm. architected differently. And it has, in some cases, um, the same or even new capabilities. And so as people have started to realize that, we're starting to see more of those people enter into the space, whether purely from a financial perspective or sometimes if they are, you know, engineers or former engineers, mm-hmm. also from a technical lens. And so what that is doing is starting to, you know, open up opportunities for, I guess, what you would consider more like institutional, you know, mm-hmm. power users or clients. Um, and the needs of those people are often a little bit different, right? They're either more sophisticated or maybe they, they have, uh, you know, certain needs that your average retail early adopter crypto user doesn't have. Um, maybe there's also things related to like compliance and other things that they need to, you know, they need someone to help them uh, manage. And so um, we're starting to see a lot of that activity and, and startups, you know, serving effectively that market. Mm-hmm. And then the last category, which um, is potentially in my mind, the most interesting mm-hmm. is what IDEO likes to call extreme users. Um, so we, we love to design for the extremes, not the middle, um, mm-hmm. because at the extremes, you have people with the most intense needs for something today or even yesterday, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to like, you know, tomorrow or five years from now. And so some of those um, extreme users, um, we think that there, there are actually many um, mm-hmm. people are kind of underestimating how big this population is. But um, there's kind of three categories that I would I would offer there. One are users in um, typically developing or emerging markets where uh, their financial or monetary systems are either uh, in, in some cases collapsing or mm-hmm. in other cases just very underdeveloped. So you find these in places like South America, Africa, Southeast Asia, India, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the opportunity for these crypto networks and DeFi services, we're seeing, um, you know, steady kind of growth or even some cases like really rapid growth. I mean, a good example of this, I think, starts with Bitcoin, but it doesn't have to stop there. It can keep going into, into like higher order things like, you know, DeFi and, and other services built on Ethereum or Bitcoin or some of these other networks. The mm-hmm. second category is um, one that I think people broadly understand, which I would say is is kind of referred to as the underbanked community. But I think there's two um, things about this that people aren't um, getting close enough into. Mm -hmm. There are actually underbanked communities that exist in developed markets. Um, A lot Mm -hmm. of people kind of think that it's just in, you know, places like uh, Africa or, or things like that. But there are large underbanked, underserved populations, even here in the U.S. and other developed nations around the world. And there's two categories that I would offer underneath this. Number one is this emerging class of individual digital entrepreneurs and creators. Mm-hmm. So these people are often um, the type of folks that you see on TikTok, on uh, Instagram, on um, you know a lot of these emergent uh, sort of digital platforms where they are uh, basically sole proprietors trying to make a living off of, you know, some talent or uh, creativity that they have. 
and these mm-hmm. people often do not have uh, financial services um, that are that are tailored to them because you know they're kind of small fish customers. Mm-hmm. And so the opportunity for uh, democratized financial infrastructure that can start to serve these people is mm-hmm. really important, especially in a world where right now in the U.S. we've got more than 21, 20 million uh, people that are unemployed and around the world, more and more traditional jobs just permanently going away. Like this part of the economy is, is getting bigger and bigger. And then the second category, just as an, another example, mm-hmm. are um, these, these freelancers um, mm-hmm. who, you know, are no longer working for one company. Um, they're often on contract. Um, they may be driving cars or delivering food or at the higher ends, you know, doing um, software development for big companies. And what's interesting about these people, very similar to these digital entrepreneurs and creators, is that they don't, number one, often get uh, have made available to them the type of financial services or products that um, normal, you know, people with, with normal traditional jobs uh, mm-hmm. have. And number two, um, these people don't work for a single company and therefore can't start to build equity like people who work for startups or bigger companies that get yeah. stock options. And that is a big problem because if you can't do that, then you can't start to build and accumulate sort of wealth and savings over time. And that leads to bigger problems. So these people need things today that the traditional system doesn't solve. And these people live, you know, even in places uh, like San Francisco where I am uh, and, and develop markets uh, all over the world. That's interesting. I mean, you, you gave a nice spectrum of like, you know, the extreme users uh, all the way in three categories. And then you also gave uh, some very interesting uh, tidbits about the underbanked and why are financial services, even in developing economies, not reaching certain cohorts of population. So mixing all of that, I mean, what, what do you think are the most compelling use cases if you basically intersect all the different needs out there, the maturation of the technology, what do you think are the first wave of use cases that are going to be big? Yeah, this is something that we we talk and brainstorm and think about and work on all day at IDEO. I mean, this is what we we love to do. So, um, you know, there are many, actually. Um, and I'll just give you some of the hot highlights. So one is, I mean, I think there, there, I mean, we, we are big fans of Bitcoin. I mean, I've been a big fan of, of Bitcoin um, since I learned about it, uh, even though it was like the fastest way to get fired at a bank in 2004, <laughs> um, uh, especially back then. Uh, but you know, the, yeah. <laughs> the, need, the need for a global, um, decentralized, uh, censorship resistant, um, digital currency is massive. Um, mm. and that should not be understated, uh, especially when, you know, right now, in places like Venezuela and others, um, you have a lot of people who are, um, you know, trapped or and, and really getting hurt, their families and, and them getting hurt by um, these monetary systems and, and not having at least a alternative option to opt into. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Bitcoin in itself is kind of a, a massive opportunity. And I just want to, you know, acknowledge that. Now, mm-hmm. outside of that, um, mm-hmm. which is, is big, outside yeah. of that, there still are really, really big opportunities. So the first is decentralized finance, which, mm-hmm. as I was mentioning earlier, you know, can really fully democratize the entire financial stack and unlock things above that. 
um, so on the DeFi side in particular, right, the opportunity to not just offer a permissionless uh, global um, censorship resistant uh, currency, but financial services and and interconnections between all those financial services is also a massive, massive opportunity. And we, we've seen, you know, the growth of DeFi just within the last six months. You know, we've been investing in that space for two years now. But mm-hmm. I think the room for that um, to grow is is exponential. I mean, I, I really don't know what the the cap on that that growth and the opportunity is. The the interesting thing that DeFi though that enables, um, and this is where I think we're starting to think a lot um, uh, about this is once you have new internet infrastructure via these these layer one platforms, and then you have new financial infrastructure which is at, at a minimum more open potentially fully decentralized. On top of that, it starts to enable adjacent things yeah. in areas that are not financial that are super exciting. Because when, when I was at Citigroup, we used to um, say that people don't care about finance or financial products. It's actually what finance enables that is important mm-hmm. to people. And so what I think DeFi now is going to enable over the next two to three years are higher order opportunities in areas like, for example, commerce, um, social media, um, gaming, um, social networks, uh, as well as future of work. And I think that that's really exciting, uh, especially when you think about what's going on today and and what's happening uh, and and been happening for a number of years, which is... um, Wealth and and uh, power is is centralizing. It, it has been for for quite some time, and in particular, it's been um, accelerating from a centralization standpoint as a result of the uh, rapid sort of growth of technology and software, mm-hmm. uh, which is effectively you know really centralized power and wealth around a few centers and and even a few people. Mm-hmm. And what we're finding, and this is way outside the crypto space, but like, um, you know, that, that for, for a society, it's, it's likely unsustainable. I mean, the, the levels of inequality in terms of wealth that we're seeing and observing is, is really troubling. And, and so where does crypto come into this? Well, um, we, we believe here at IDEO that, um, decentralized technologies via crypto can effectively decentralize the ownership of technology and some of uh, these software platforms mm-hmm. and doing so that enables more people to participate in the upside growth of technology over time. And hopefully will be a part of, uh, making, um, society more sustainable by giving opportunity and, and not, uh, only to, you know, uh, a few people. So, so this, this concept of cooperative software or community owned software is actually a really big uh, area, I think, in the, going forward. And uh, it's, it's an area that I'm really, really passionate about. That's exciting. Um, you mentioned about central bank issue digital currencies. Uh, you, you looked at that framework when you were at City. Uh, how does CBDC overlay on everything that you just said, right? I mean, which is like much more on the decentralized side of things. What are your thoughts? Yeah, CBDC is very interesting because um, when we were studying it, uh, as early as 2013 and 2014 at Citigroup, 
um, we saw the potential for it. Um, and, and so what we were trying to do was figure out um, where would it be adopted and, and how would it, how would these things be designed? And I think um, number one, in 2014, 15 governments in my, in my experience, they, they sort of backed off from CBDCs because it, it just wasn't interesting enough to mm-hmm. most of them. And so it's, it's really fascinating now to see, you know, five years later, CBDCs all over the place and everyone, you know, all these countries from, uh, you know, ones in Asia to the, to North America, to, to Europe, um, announcing that, that they're now doing CBDC pilots. And, and I think that the lessons from, um, from, you know, the work that I did, um, still hold true. So there's a couple things. Um, number one is that, um, there are different archetypes of governments and countries and depending on the archetype of that government or country, um, the design and also likeliness to adopt a CBDC, uh, anytime soon Mm -hmm. is different. So for example, um, there is an archetype of government, which is sort of already in a global leadership position Maybe their currency is is widely used and, and is considered one of the you know few global reserve currencies. Mm-hmm. Um, they're likely to not adopt a CBDC anytime soon because the the, the, uh, the yeah the impetus and need to do so is is not super extreme. It's not it's not really there. So then you have these these other archetypes though of of countries and governments. Um, for example, uh, the archetype where it's a government who is trying is maybe smaller and sees uh, the the potential for a CBDC or open financial infrastructure uh, with a CBDC to help grow the economy, influence, and position globally of that country. Um, maybe they want to attract more investment. Maybe they want to attract uh, you know these crypto entrepreneurs to their country. Maybe they want the next you know Google or Facebook built in their country, not in the U S something like that, that category is, is highly motivated to adopt CBDCs. And, and that's what we've been seeing over the last five years is some of these countries like Singapore and and others who have been very kind of, um, you know, progressive with respect to, uh, the, the design of these things and support of these things. Mm -hmm. And there's many more actually all over the world in like the middle East and, and other places, um, that are starting to emerge. So that's that's the second category. And I think th- those are the ones that are most likely to adopt this thing. The, the third category is kind of interesting. You've got um, governments who are more um, interested in, for example, the unique capabilities of a CBDC around um, surveillance or mm-hmm. uh, analysis or, or sort of um, increased control. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you have uh, com- countries that have started to explore that over the last few years. Some of those have gone really well. Other of uh, other of those have, have not done that well. But that's kind of another um, archetype that actually is is fairly motivated to to do something like that um, to prevent uh, people from you know either going to a different reserve currency or um, altogether going to something like Bitcoin. And and so those are kind of the the high level archetypes. And I think what in my opinion, is is um, the opportunity is actually in that that second category, 
And and the last point I'll just make, and I, I could go on about this for hours, is in, in in my experience both at Citigroup but here at IDEO is we've been starting to get looped into some of these conversations with governments about CBDC designs, is that the most important thing to start with is actually what is a CBDC, um, what is its unique value proposition mm-hmm. to, to the citizen and end user, whether that's a person or a business. Don't start from the tech. Don't start from the monetary policy kind of um, ambitions or, or objectives. Mm-hmm. Don't start from the political or you know governmental kind of um, aspirations with respect to the CBDC. Start from the end user and like think through how would this be better than what they have today, and and what could this enable for them, and how could it help improve their lives first, and mm-hmm. then all the other stuff out. And I, I think that there's a few countries that we have been engaging with that are thinking about that through that lens. But I, mm-hmm. I hope that as more governments start to do CBDC work, that they really think through it um, with that lens. And and obviously, if, if they need help doing that, they, uh, they can reach out to me. But um, that's what I think is really important is to not mm-hmm. design, it, design it for, um, you know, some kind of technical or, or uh, financial objective, but but design it from a from a human perspective, um, in terms of what it can do for for people in in a country or or you know around the world. That is so fascinating. I think I have so many more fascinating, so many more follow up questions, Ian. But um, this, this has been this has been a lot of fun, Ian. Uh, in a very short span of time, we covered all the way from user groups, use cases, cohorts to the various archetypes and what how they could potentially evolve two central bank uh, issued digital currencies and how they all intersect and interplay with all of that. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation, Ian, and uh, thank you so much for making the time. I uh, really appreciate uh, you coming here. Thank you, Raghu. Pleasure. Thanks, Ian. You've been listening to the Falcon X Podcast. Make sure to find us online at falconx.io or follow us on Twitter at FalconX Network. Join us next week as we dive even further into the world of cryptocurrency.